Just a reminder, the views expressed on the kibitz are solely those of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the podcast or its sponsors. Thanks. These are inarguably crazy times, no matter what side of the political spectrum you find yourself. And it's with this in mind that I wanted to tell this story. I think that, if nothing else, it might provide some guidance from a very unexpected source, the so-called chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. This is the story of two strangers in the night, a bag full of cash, and a ship full of weapons bound for the fledgling state of Israel. It's March of 1948, and Frank Sinatra is performing at the famous Copacabana Club at 10 East 60th Street in New York City. Next door, sharing the same building as the Copa, is the Hotel 14, with its entrance at 14 East 60th Street. Inside the Hotel 14, in a room upstairs, is the secret headquarters of Israel's pre-state defense force, the Haganah. On this night, in March of 1948, Downstairs at the hotel bar sits Haganah leader Teddy Kolek, the future mayor of Jerusalem, who strikes up an interesting conversation with Old Blue Eyes. A conversation that could have led Sinatra to jail or may have been instrumental in the birth of the Jewish state of Israel. Welcome to the Kibbutz. I'm your host, Dan Crane, and this is a special episode dedicated to Frank Sinatra's fascinating, lifelong relationship with the Jews and Israel. I got into Sinatra at a young age, thanks to my dad, who seemed to always have Sinatra playing in his car or in the house. I remember my dad singing along to I've Got You Under My Skin. He had a pretty good voice. My mom even said she'd married him because he sang like Tony Bennett. They divorced when I was 14, but that's another story. When I think about Frank Sinatra, I picture a tough, wise guy, a swinging rat packer who swilled Jack Daniels on the rocks and always wore a perfectly fitted suit. But until recently, I didn't know he was such a big fan of the Jews. I mean, sure, he hung out with Sammy Davis Jr., who converted to Judaism, and Jerry Lewis, a.k.a. Joseph Levitch, who he affectionately, or not, referred to as the Jew. But I had no idea the extent to which his philo-Semitism went. In this episode of The Kibbutz, we will look at Sinatra's Jewish activism and what led him to risk his own safety and freedom to help the state of Israel. Did he do it because he liked the adventure or because he felt a genuine love for the Jewish people? Maybe it was a little bit of both. So, come fly with me as I do it my way on this special Sinatra episode of The Kibbutz. Frank's love for the Jews stemmed from his early childhood. This old Jewish lady, Mrs. Golden, um, looked after him a lot when he was a little boy. That's Anthony Summers, author of Sinatra, The Life, one of the best-known definitive biographies of Frank Sinatra. And she fed him coffee cake and apples and gave him an inscribed Jewish charm that, that he came to treasure and, and wore far into his adult years, a, a mezuzah. Um, uh, a scroll in a, in a little metal case. And it is said in the family that he picked up more Yiddish from Mrs. Golden 
uh, in his early years than he did Italian. He never came to speak Italian as, as uh, his parents and uncles and so on did. As Sinatra became increasingly famous as a singer, he often spoke out against discrimination. Frank Sinatra was quite conscious of being an Italian Catholic at a time when uh, the newly uh, immigrated Italian-Americans were susceptible to prejudice in Hoboken. And he found, as a lad, natural allies among the Jews who lived nearby. That's David Lehman. He's a poet, writer, and editor whose book, Sinatra Century, is now out in paperback. And when he began performing, he was very sensitive to the idea of uh, discrimination along racial or religious lines. Among his first uh, songwriters were Sammy Kahn and uh, Julie Stein, and he was uh, fiercely loyal to them. Uh, he, were, he would not work on Anchors Away, the movie that paired him with uh, Gene Kelly for MGM in the mid-40s. He would not uh, show up Monday, he said, if uh, uh, Stein and Kahn were not the songwriters for that movie, which took a lot of chutzpah. Throughout World War II, Frank continued to rail against anti-Semitism in both his professional and his private life. Here's Anthony Summers again. His interest in in Jewry and in in Jewish people um, came to a peak for the first time in 1942, um, uh, when the war had begun and when the first reports of Nazi atrocities reached the United States. He had hundreds of medallions made bearing the image of St. Christopher on one side and the Star of David on the other. And he sent them all over the place to many, many people. And um, in Hollywood, a couple of years later, um, 1944-ish, he sang at a benefit for, uh, for elderly Jews. And at the baptism, the Catholic baptism ceremony for his son, Frank Jr., he threatened to walk up when the Catholic priest trying to block his choice of a Jew as godfather. In fact, Frank Jr. got his middle name from his Jewish godfather, Frank Sr.'s close friend, Emmanuel Manny Sachs. As one can imagine, given what one knows of Frank's temper and so on, the priest backed down. And uh, when he discovered that the number of golf clubs on the east coast of the United States excluded Jews, he became the only the second Gentile to join a club with an overwhelmingly Jewish membership. One of Frank's first public forays into speaking out against prejudice was the short film The House I Live In, which came out in 1945. So it's the era right before the blacklist when there are still people in the film industry who are very, very left-wing and liberal and want to do something... um, that's still in the spirit of anti-fascism. This is Shalom Goldman, a professor of religion at Middlebury College. The writer, the director, and the producer, and the person who wrote the music are all Jews. But they're Jews, of certain kind of Hollywood Jews of the 40s. It's not like they're going to the synagogue or... In fact, they have nothing to do with Zionism either. So again, this is part of this kind of liberalism in America which has, at this point in 1945, a Jewish face. And according to Anthony Summers... It was built around a song that had previously been sung only by a a black gospel group 
and and uh, everyone assumed would just sort of disappear. The famous words of it, which he sung in the end, down the years into old age. What is America to me? To me. A name, a map, or a flag I see. A certain word, democracy, and then the children in the playground, faces that I see, all races and religions. That's America to me. And and in the movie, the short movie, um, he's a surprise, surprise, a crooner who comes out of a studio to find um, a bunch of young young lads. Um, Shouting out or abusing um, a young Jew. Somebody in for licking? You bet! Wait a mirror! Yeah, but ten against one. That's not very fair. Ah, come on! Come on! What's it all about? We don't like his religion. His religion? Look, mister, he's a dirt. Ah, hold on. I see what you mean. You must be a bunch of those Nazi werewolves I've been reading about. Mister, are you screwy? Not me. I'm an American. Well, what do you think we are? Nazis. And he says, look, look, look fellas, religion makes no difference. doesn't make any difference. Except maybe to a Nazi or somebody as stupid. Why, people all over the world worship God in many different ways. God created everybody. God didn't, didn't create, create one people, people better, than another. better than another. Your, Your blood is the same as mine. Mine's the same as his. And, and look, our country's made up of a hundred different kinds of people, and they're all Americans. Let's use our American brains and not fight each other. And the boys become calm and the fight stops and and they, they all disperse. Um, I think all of this was genuine. I mean, it was part of his persona, stage persona and public persona at that time, but it was also, also what he genuinely believed. And in these days with the sort of things that have been emanating from the Republican side and and your Mr. Trump. Um, it's refreshing to, to hear those words spoken and meant. Again, here's Shalom Goldman. The movie was received rapturously. It was shown all over America. I mean, I was born in 47, but I remember seeing it in school. And uh, yeah, if you speak to people my age, like people 70 or over, by people like but both people, it, it wasn't only shown in cities, it was shown like in town halls and churches all over America. It's interesting to note that the writer and director of the film was Albert Maltz, a member of the Hollywood Ten who was blacklisted and jailed for his refusal to testify about his involvement with the Communist Party. And the song, The House I Live In, was written by a communist, Abel Mirapol, who also penned the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit. Both songs were written under Mirapol's pseudonym, Lewis Allen. Sinatra was not a communist. This is Tony Michaels, professor of American Jewish history at the University of Wisconsin. But there are a lot of liberals like Sinatra who mingled in those circles. You know, where there are a lot of communists in Hollywood, and they associated with a lot of liberals and progressives, and, and they made movies and songs and things like this that celebrated uh, an inclusive culturally pluralistic America is saying to the United States, look, we're not a nation of white Christian or no, white Protestants. You know, we're a nation of Catholics and Jews and Protestants of different races, and we should all be seen as, as equal Americans. By 1946, Frank Sinatra was a massive star. 
He'd appeared in several films and recorded his first studio album, The Voice of Frank Sinatra, for Columbia Records, which shot to number one on the Billboard chart and remained there for seven weeks. But he also had gotten some bad press for headlining the famous 1946 Mafia Conference in Havana, Cuba, a get-together of wise guy A-listers hosted by Lucky Luciano. In March of 1948, just two months before the creation of the State of Israel, Sinatra was performing at the hottest club north of Havana, the Copa, itself reportedly controlled by mobster Frank Costello. The crooner found himself playing the role of a guy running funds to a clandestine Jewish paramilitary organization, becoming, perhaps, an instrumental player in the birth of the Jewish state. Only, despite how much this all sounds straight out of a movie, Sinatra wasn't acting. Here's Anthony Summers. Frank saw himself as a man of action, and, and he liked to, to act. And at one point, just after the war, when Israel was fighting to, for its existence and to establish itself, uh, Frank got a chance to actually be part of the action, and he jumped at it. At that time, the place where he was regularly performing at the Copacabana in New York was in the same building as the building in which the Haganah, one of the military arms of Zionism, had, it, had its local Manhattan headquarters. And he came down to the, the bar at one point and encountered Teddy Kollek, later to be famous, of course, as the mayor of Jerusalem, but at that time running clandestine Haganah operations in the United States. And Kollek had a problem. He had uh, an Irish ship's captain sitting in the port of New York um, with a load of munitions that he was going to carry to Israel, but he needed paying. And Kollek knew that because um, the feds were watching the Haganah, um, that he was very likely to be arrested if he walked out of the door carrying the cash. And Sinatra said he'd carry it for him. And so Kollek went out of the first, out of the front door and duly got followed, and I think actually held that night. And Frank Sinatra went out of the back door carrying a paper bag filled with apparently $1 million, which would in today's values be about $7 million, and handed it to the ship's captain, and the arms went off to Israel. This became a legend, a true legendary story. And two Israeli prime ministers, Ben-Gurion and Begin, um, were later to thank him um, privately for, for what he'd done. Where did the million dollars come from? It's possible it came from William Levitt. In 1947, William Levitt, whose family business pioneered the mass production of homes and was responsible for building seven large suburban developments known as Levittown, handed Teddy Kolick a million-dollar check as a loan for weapons. Kolick is reported to have said, quote, We need money. I can't tell you what it's for. But if you'll lend us the money, the provisional government of the state of Israel will give you a note and pay you back in a year, end quote. I know, this really all does sound like a piece of fiction, but according to Shalom Goldman, Last year when I was in Jerusalem, Amos Kolick Who's, who's a film director, he's Teddy Kollek's son, sent me a message uh, saying that it's a true story, that he, as a kid, met Sinatra, and Sinatra affirmed that story, that he, that he smuggled. Allegedly, it was a million dollars. I don't know if 
it's a mythical figure or a real figure, but it was like a big sack of, you know, you can imagine a gym bag full of bills. There are a few questions I have about this story. First, why would Sinatra, who was at the peak of his fame, take such a risk? And second, how did Teddy Kolek know to trust Sinatra? Was Frank's love of the Jews so widely known at the time that Kolek would have specifically targeted Sinatra? Was that why he set up shop for the Haganah upstairs from the Copa? Was it all part of the plan? We can only speculate. Years later, Teddy Kolek did write of his time at the CD Hotel 14 in his memoir, For Jerusalem, A Life. Quote, My work touched on weapon production, speculations on ship purchases, dealings with factories and junkyards, liaison with spies, mobsters, movie moguls, statesmen, bankers, professors, industrialists, and newspaper men, and no lack of illegalities from petty to international. Deals were made with South American governments to buy tanks and innumerable other things and ship them on to Palestine, end quote. There may have been a mob connection as well. Robert A. Rockaway, in his book, But He Was Good to His Mother, The Lives and Crimes of Jewish Gangsters, great title, mentions that Haganah operative Reuven Daphne, a member of Kolek's Hotel 14 group, went to Miami to meet Jewish gangster boss Sam Kay, who had connections with corrupt officials in Cuba and Panama. And according to Shalom Goldman, Between 44 and 48, in New York City, there were many, many events in which performers, singers, actors um, uh, would do, would, would either come to these events or perform at these events or send money to these events. Uh, most, uh, I mean, most, the thing that tickles me the most is Marlon Brando acted in one of these pageants at Madison Square Garden put on by the Zionist organization. So Sinatra was in that group of arts industry, entertainment and arts liberals who was known to be sympathetic to, to Zionism, definitely. I can't imagine that, you know, Kalik would just stroll up to someone he wasn't sure about because, you know, they could uh, betray him. Years later, Sinatra told Nancy that he did this for the Israelis because, quote, I wanted to help. I was afraid they might fall down. I think the picture here is the underdog. The Israelis are perceived as the underdog, and Sinatra saw himself as an underdog. Someone, you know, a poor kid from an Italian immigrant neighborhood who somehow made it. Also, I think he was daring, and if, you know, if even some of the stuff is true about his relationship with the mob, some of it seems to be true, he liked that kind of uh, bravado. He'd speak about race hatred being wrong. That's Anthony Summers again. And sing the songs that were relevant to race hatred. He'd, he'd sing them at rallies with thousands of people around him. So I think it's enormously likely um, that Colic did know in advance that Sinatra might be the one to help. To understand why this was such a big deal, it's important to note the United States policy on weapons sales at the time. Here's Tony Michaels. Well, it was actually illegal to, to ship arms to Israel because uh, the U.S. imposed an arms embargo on the region, not just on, not just on Palestine or Israel, but, but, the, um, but the whole region. But that's not to say that Frank's actions were all that surprising in context. 
Americans generally supported the state of Israel. That's, I think, very important to keep in mind. American popular opinion is very strongly in favor of Israel. At the forefront of that were often liberals and, and people who were more radical than that, you know, uh, communists or people who moved kind of in between liberalism and communism. That's the big picture I think that's important to have, have in mind when you're, when you're considering Frank Sinatra. Um, clearly, he was unusual in the sense that he was willing to stick his neck out to smuggle for the, on behalf of this arm smuggling ring. So he's unusual in that sense. But he was typical in as much as he, he came out of a time and place and atmosphere and in the entertainment industry in New York, in L.A., places like this, where to support to come out against anti-Semitism and to support the state of Israel were causes you wanted to be part of. In May of 1962, Sinatra visited Israel for the first time and performed seven widely attended concerts. Quote, I have wanted to visit this great state of Israel for 10 years, he said when he stepped off his private plane in Israel. Now, at last, my wish has materialized. End quote. Anthony Summers points out just how popular Sinatra was in Israel. There was a joke I read somewhere about how when he was um, singing in, in Israel, there was great concern about the national security at the time because virtually the entire population was at the concert. The Histodrut, Israel's trade union organization, even made a short film documenting Sinatra's visit. The young people of Israel will help shape the coming half century. And I, for one, want to see them attain the know-how and the skills that they need. Sinatra was quite the salesman for life in Israel. Down the highway, screened by a green curtain, is the charming Kaplan Hospital, one of 16 maintained by Histodrut. This unusual organization is quite a thing. Your union card gives you the best medical care in the world. And even without belonging to Histodrut, hundreds of thousands of immigrants get their fine service. In fact, two-thirds of Israel is covered by Kupat Halim. This accounts for the healthy babies and low death rate. If you have to get sick, Israel is a place for it. The proceeds of these first concerts were used to establish the loftily titled Frank Sinatra Brotherhood and Friendship Youth Center near Mary's Well in Nazareth. Here's Shalom Goldman. The, the youth center didn't really achieve its vision. Uh, it became more like a, a club for kids, but and it had educational programs. Uh, and as far as I know, it's still going, but... Sinatra's idea of it was based on a kind of YMCA idea. Uh, you know, like this would be a place for people from all economic and racial and religious categories to mix. But of course, that's not the Israeli ethos, or it didn't turn out to be. Israel turned out to be about separation and not about unity. Freelance writer and radio producer Paul Caroli stumbled upon the center a few years ago while visiting Nazareth. So this grungy sign is like hidden under kind of a, I mean, it's on a grungy office building. And it said Frank Sinatra Center for Brotherhood and Friendship. And I was like, what? What? That doesn't compute. You know, I didn't expect to see that here. Apparently, due to a lack of ongoing funding, its original dream of a community center for Arab and Israeli children never really came to fruition. They really don't do anything there anymore. It's a Histadrut office. It just looks like your regular office building. They're, like I went in there and I, 
like basically after I found the sign, we did some back and research. And then I went back and I went in and tried to talk to people about it. And they had no idea what I was talking about. No one thinks about it as the Frank Sinatra Center there. It's just like a forgotten relic. Sinatra never lost his feeling that, that he was a champion of Israel. Again, here's Anthony Summers. I think, though, that he also had a constant sense of wanting to be even-handed. And um, he, he did, although he hated some Arabs and would, would roar with, with rage against them, um, he would also um, feel some sympathy for others. Um, I mean, he hated Arafat, um, but had sympathy with, with Jordan and, and thought that it came to think that the U.S. should show support to the Palestinians that was equal to the support they showed for the Jews, um, a difficult tightrope that senior politicians are trying to tread to this day. He said once, we're talking about making peace, and what we're doing is giving both sides tools of war. We're giving Jordan airplanes and Israel airplanes. Doesn't make any sense to me. And this wasn't a very sophisticated man, but with a heart that was clearly in the right place. And uh, in 1972, he'd received Israel's medallion of valor, recognizing the millions of dollars that he'd raised for Israel. And, and uh, Teddy Kollek, uh, whom he'd known in the Second World War, presented him with a, an award from the, the Jerusalem Foundation. In 1980, he became a fellow of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. What's interesting about these tales of philanthropy is how to square them with the way many typically think of Sinatra as a rough-and-tumble, hard-drinking associate of the mob. But as Shalom Goldman notes, Sinatra was both. I think he was both something of a hood and, of course, a self-promoter. And he had this, perhaps, uh, liberal, charitable side to him. To that end... I will leave you with this story from Anthony Summers, which I think sums up Sinatra's duality rather well. Oh, there were frequently funny sides to Sinatra's life, many of them triggered by alcohol. One, one episode took place in Israel he, when he was there in 1965 for the shooting of a movie called Cast a Giant Shadow um, about a hero of the Israeli conflict uh, at the beginning of, of the state. Um, he indulged in an extraordinary outburst. Um, Rock Brenner, that's the son of Yul Brenner, who starred in the movie, um, remembered it vividly. He said, we're in the hotel, it's midnight, and we're drinking. Suddenly, after only 24 hours in Israel, Frank becomes a Jew. He's got to get them suckers for the Holocaust deal. And he starts deciding that, he decides that he should start trying to phone um, Alfred Krupp von Boland, the armaments heir who'd, been, who'd used slave labor during World War II. Uh, and um, uh, Brenner said, uh, Sinatra picked up the phone after midnight and said, get me Krupp von Boland. She says, where does he live? And Frank turns to me and says, where does he live? And I said, Essen in Germany. And the operator tra- starts trying to explain to Sinatra that there's no connection during the night in the mid-60s. And Frank wouldn't listen. And suddenly the operator is a Nazi collaborator disguised as a Jewish phone operator. He's hammering the kitchen, ta- the coffee table with the earpiece of the phone saying, I want Krupp van Bolen in Germany. And, um, and 
uh, Brenner went down to try and calm the hotel operator um, who had been on the receiving end of this. And, when, and he said, when I, when I got back, Frank had this little ring of plastic in his hand with a bouquet of wires sticking out of it, all that's left of the phone, still shouting, get me Krupp von Bolen in Essen, Germany. <laughs> if you want to watch The House I Live In or the Sinatra in Israel documentary from 1962, we have both of them up on our website, kibitzpod.com. They're pretty incredible, and The House I Live In is remarkably contemporary considering the present political climate. It makes you wonder what old blue eyes would make of our times. So that's it for this Sinatra episode of The Kibitz. If you dug it, in the uh, parlance of old blue eyes, please let us know by reviewing it on iTunes and spread the word via your social networks. Hit us up, Jack, on the Facebook, the Twitter, the Snapchat, whatever. We are on Twitter at KibitzPod, and we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheKibitz. Like our page, please. And you can email me at KibitzPod at gmail.com or tweet me at DanCraneHere. I'd really like to thank my guests, Anthony Summers, David Lehman, Shalom Goldman, Paul Caroli, and Tony Michaels. If you're interested in reading more about Sinatra, please check out both Anthony Summers and David Lehman's books. As I mentioned, David Lehman's book, Sinatra Century, just came out in paperback. Also, Anthony Summers has a new book out tied to the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor called A Matter of Honor, published by HarperCollins. It tells the incredible story of Admiral Kimmel, who was scapegoated for the disaster while the top brass in Washington, much more guilty of failure, got off scot-free. It sounds like a really interesting book, so check it out. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane, with additional help from Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Special thanks to David Katz-Nelson, Francine Hermelin, and as always, Reboot. Our main theme is courtesy of Nunon Plu. And as my great-grandmother used to say... That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks for listening to The Kibitz. Kibitz.